0: Digging a Hole, the Legal Theory podcast, where we talk about legal theory and think life in law schools. And I'm here with my colleague, Sam Mullen, and we're really excited. It should be a really fun episode. Who do we have with us today, Sam? We're
1: well, welcoming uh, Claire Priest, who's our colleague at, at Yale Law, has a new book out. And as I always say, you can never have too much property history.
0: That, but ironically, I completely agree. So <laughs> I,
1: I didn't mean it ironically. <laughs>
0: No, it's very, it's very exciting. Her, we're going to talk about her wonderful book, uh, "Credit Nation: Property Laws and Institutions in Early America." So uh, let's get to it. <music> Welcome to Digging the Hole. Um, we're so excited to have our wonderful colleague Claire Priest here to talk to us about her new book, "Credit Nation: Property Laws and Institutions in Early America."
2: Thank you so much for coming, Claire. Thanks so much, Sam and David. It's great to be here.
0: No, it's it's a privilege to have you. And
1: you know, I'm just going to ask a couple of questions for you to summarize the amazing book and aspects of it. Um, I, I thought it would be interesting to start with kind of cr- chronology and, and geography. Um, in part, because I, 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 I want to kind of abate a confusion I have about the book school as as someone who's more familiar with like the european side of things so the 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 word nations in the title but obviously for most of the period you're covering you're dealing with a colony of of an empire um yes. and you know you you brilliantly you know argue first in detail that there was there was a distinctive trajectory in 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 this part of the british empire um, and so I, I, you do get up to the American Revolution. So I, I just um, like you to kind of begin by explaining some of that distinctiveness. Um, here's why, you know, w- um, you you at the beginning you you make a big deal of the fact that you know there was widespread freeholding in uh, in this part of the world, unlike yes. in the mother country or at that point the country. Um, and you cite William Blackstone about kind of, you know, what property law was about over there um, in England, which was, you know, inheritance. Uh, but I guess, you know, if you read, you know, John Pocock and people of this sort, if you read kind of the British historians on this same era, they're also doing stories of the, of the origins of capitalist growth. Uh, and they make a big deal about kind of the rise of mobile property and credit. Um, So could you just explain once we kind of think about these as as kind of parallel processes, um, what 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 your arguments are about about kind of what's happening in um, colonial North America specifically?
2: Right. Well, thank you so much for Sam. that's a great question. One of the things. the the, the topic is very nuanced in the sense that, yes, some of these trends are happening also in um, Britain and in Europe at the same time. But what I'm describing is that in the the colonial period, there were um, pretty dramatic changes to both the laws and the institutional structure um, for property. So both with regard to to land and to slaves that I think did make it distinctive from um, Britain. And and there are nuances because, of course, in England, there are land markets, people have mortgages. So it's sort of um, on the margins, though, I think there that there are, are great changes. And, and one of the things that you could look at is so in 1732, the British Parliament uh, passes a, a statute that applies only to um, all of the colonies in America, but doesn't apply to um, England itself, um, that requires that land slaves, houses um, all be treated as chattel um, under English law and also that the courts use the processes for seizing for creditors to be able to seize uh, the property that for for chattel. and so um, what that meant was that um, so in England there are, uh, protections on land, like say, for, from unsecured creditors, um, that this law passed, you know, again for all the colonies, um, removed. And so, so in England, there's still a divide between chattel property and real property that has implications in all sorts of ways, both from you know creditor relations, but also in inheritance that get removed in the colonial era. And so that means that um, you know basically any form of property is treated like a chattel com- commodity uh, would be have been in England, and then, with regard to the the processes that were used, say for creditors to seize the assets, um, that meant that you know under this British Parliamentary Act, in some colonies, you had to hold slave auctions under the law. You had to hold land auctions under the law. Having you know your land held up for public auction in England wasn't happening um, at this time. I mean, interestingly, in uh, Britain, a law was passed. Um, Later on, like in, I think a century later, 1833, that essentially did the same thing. So you see that, you know, so it's essentially a century ahead in the colonies. Um, And I think that that um, created an atmosphere where both the, uh, that where people had, there was sort of greater access to credit, but then it also led to an atmosphere where people are leveraging the property that they have. And for the colonies that had slaves, as the labor source, they're using slaves as collateral uh, to a, you know, that that clearly had to have an, an impact of expanding um, slavery, because, you know, to use it at, as collateral for even for the purchase of, of further slaves um, led to an expansion of slavery. But I think that di- this d- distinction, so that's so that's one side of sort of the body of laws that commodify property. A second thing with regard to the institutions is that the colonies adopted a system of uh public title recording and public mortgage recording. So in England, of course, people have mortgages, people have uh, property titles, but a lot of the conveyancing is happening in private homes, using the lawyers and kind of out of the public view. And people view that process to be that system to be expensive because you hiring lawyers for everything to go over you some people had an attic room with the big chest with all the property documents and you the lawyers would get together and they go it was the deed room go through everything you know if you wanted to get a mortgage um you know to the fact that you could just go into the common pleas courts which met quarterly in every county and and record it uh, there for a small fee and then have those records accessible to everyone i think that it was viewed as as really like widening the 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 number of you know broadening the number of people who had access to credit, creating a much different atmosphere. Again, going back to slavery, it was you know facilitating the use of of slaves and land as 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 a property that could be used to access further credit, and you know so it was a sort of streamlined process. But it's hard to. I mean, I think that there's that people have often pushed back and said, well, of course, you know, the credit markets don't need these institutions. And of course, that's true. So I think it's just like lowering the costs of all of this and like both in defining the property rights in a particular way and in creating the institutions that um, that uh, support it leads to. You know, a different sort of atmosphere, and I guess part of it was interesting. You said using the word "nation." I think part I am sort of forward-looking that I think it does it does have lasting impacts. I mean, we do live in this you know market capitalist society that you know compared to many countries in the world is much more market-oriented and commercial than um, than you know traditional societies, and so I, I do think that you know this started pretty early on in the colonial era with a lot of changes to these laws and institutions.
1: Right. So, I mean, I, actually, you, you've kind of answered a second question, but I'll ask it anyway, just to kind of, you know, get you to kind of focus and even more on some aspects of what you just said. You know, one is about the role of institutions. And, and I, I really just want to ask a question about kind of what it means to be a historian of, of, of law and economics um, or the law of economic affairs, um, since you, this is not at all a narrow study and you make a point not just in the subtitle but throughout the text in arguing that we have to attend to institutions um but maybe I'll I'll, I'll also kind of invite you to talk more about like the end point of the study you know which is in the revolutionary period um it can't be though that w- we argue that America end up you know as a, a a more commercial or more capitalist society than England i mean i get we'll get later into kind of global comparisons. Or is that the argument Um, that the endpoint is not just an independent country, but one that because of these institutions has ended up in a, in a, in a, a very different place than kind of the empire from which it's, you know, seceded.
2: You know, it's interesting. My frame of reference was not so much thinking about a comparison with, with Britain. And so I can't, you know, I actually can't really speak to that as much. I have to say, so what motivated me to to do this project was going back to um, even to grad school when I was interested in economic history and there one of the uh, dominant theories in economic history for a long time has been the idea that property rights and institutions are the linchpin of, you know, the wealth of nations and economic development. And we think, you know, Douglas North won a Nobel prize for this idea. And as I was reading that literature, I uh, first, I found the use of those terms pretty vague. And then, also went when I started teaching property law, I was really interested to find, you know, read the literature on how you explain the uh the relation between property and economic development in the United States. And I found that there was just very little in this period about the colonial era, founding era. Um, so so my frame of reference is is. I have to say, is sort of coming from that literature that has focused a lot on, you know, more maybe more so on like comparisons with Latin American societies, you know, something like Robinson and Asamoglu, who are in their book, uh, Why Nations Fail, have an account of how institutions have affected the relative wealth globally. So I have to say, I can't speak specifically about Britain because clearly you, know, you get a very capitalist society there and a lot of the same, you know, institutions and laws. But um, but with regard to I think with many, if you look at the... Um, you know, look around the world, it's it's pretty indisputable that, that you know, laws and institutions have had an impact on people's ability to access capital and the like. So, for example, some countries don't have chattel mortgages today, you know, whereas we see this emerging, interestingly, you know, and associated with slaves uh, in, in the Carolinas in the 17th century, which is, um, you know, sort of shocking. The um, so that that's more the the reference point um, for this. and and I sort of wrote the book that, I wanted to read what it, I had. I have to tell you early on, I had this sinking feeling because so little had been written in this area that much of this book and is was just sort of me and the primary sources. So one of the things I'm proud of about this book actually is just how much was just constructed from the original documents with nothing to guide me.
1: <laughs> oh, it's it's heroic. It's totally heroic in that regard. and you know, it starts a discussion uh, without you know many other entrants yet, so absolutely.
2: And one of the goals of the book is just to get it out there and to have people, you know, to have it be generative. You know, I think that there are so many PhD dissertations that I could, if people found. Now, when you go around, you know, the family table and tell people that you're, you're studying, you know, mortgage recording, you're not going to get a lot of uh, slaps on the back, but
0: um, information costs and properties, the new hotness. It's, (laughs) it's, it's, it's it's definitely all that. I have a ton of questions about the relationship between this and property theory. And so so, some of them you've actually previewed, but I want to start in a slightly different place. Um, uh, one of the the big themes of the book maybe the big theme, is the kind of American desire for regularization standardization publicization of property rights so this is um uh both some of this came from England with the uh, debt recovery act treating everything as chattel property but other come from you know domestic pressure to end fee tales local public registries and I wonder that this seems like a very different story the one you're telling about standardization than what I take to be one of the two big stories we tell about standardization which comes from uh, Scott's. Like a state, so their story there is that publicization, regularization is a way for this, for kind of facilitate state control and taxation. And in your story, locals wanted publicization, standardization to engage in mutual exchange, to trade and to borrow, to have get credit, um, and not to have a stronger relation with the state. And when the state attempted to use American demand for regularization as a tool for control and to control, a tool for um, raising money, it caused a revolution. So. Uh, am I right in thinking that your story is in some degree of hostility with seeing like a state, and that you're right and James Scott's wrong?
2: I would never say James Scott's wrong. I was a James Scott student in grad, in grad school. I took it's his okay. Agrarian Sam studies.
0: and I both well though, so okay. it's fine. I, yeah, Sam. I've Sam's written, on record, I've, and I just I've think so. My Scott takedown, so. Yeah, and I and I just think so. So I'm I'm Team Claire.
2: Well, I think also you have to look at the context of this going back to 17th and 18th century colonial America. I think what I found was that, and so a lot of, so just going back to how this book was written, I spent a lot of time in just in the colonial laws. So for example, in my office, I have, you know, every act from Virginia from the start up to 1820. And I just look through, I mean, I've just Go page by page, looking through what are they doing in these legislatures, and so I get the sense that that actually within each colony, the property owners felt that they could kind of commandeer the institutions of the state to advance their own ends. So there's a lot of lawmaking having to do with property and institutions, as we, as described the courts and title recording and um and and so I think that you to the extent I think. I think parliament and the crown would have loved to be more of the kind of state that Jim Scott's describing, but I think that with the Atlantic there and they didn't have the capacity, so they're developing the capacity over the 18th century. So I think that after the seven years war, you know, administration gets in place that says, you know, we've got to finally rein these, these people in over in the colonies and right. And that's where things go bad. But I do think that you see a, a kind of colony by colony, you uh, approach where and and this is sort of ties into some of the values that you see in the founding of people thinking this can be a country you know for us the property meaning the property owners which you know we know that of course if we're talking about white male freehold landowners i think uh yeah, Alex Kesar pointed out, or maybe it was Robert Steinfeld, that these are only really 15% of human beings who who we're talking about. But um, but they thought of these institutions as as things that they could they could, you know, the state as something they could command. But I do want to point out something that that also that you mentioned about um about fees and sort of who's gonna who is this gonna be revenue generating? Um, because this is a story that I I I tried to weave in there which is that the, this is, ends up being a source in some colonies of a lot of tension between the colonists and the crown authorities. So there I I start chapter 2 which is about the history of title recording with a little uh, something that I in exchange I found about you know who's going to get the fees from recording titles and the in in Pennsylvania they want title recording in the local community but that would take away the fees from the the colonial administrator, so they say, no, you can't do local title recording, and so there's this kind of fight for the local local communities to take over. And actually, David, this sort of ties into to some of your work. I think you know, you think, why do we why do we elect our county clerk and in Connecticut. It seems crazy, but I think, I actually think there's a lot of that institutional design was happening in the colonial era to make sure that this person wasn't appointed by the the crown appointed governor. Um, The governors are trying to set up these patronage networks and the locals are saying, no, let's just elect people out of the, out of the the property owners and as a way to buffer against imperial control. So there's this kind of fight for the local that's happening throughout this period that I think is really interesting.
0: I mean, one that goes on to today, right? We have county-level property assessment frequently um, for taxation purposes, and we, the property tax is obviously a dominant local tax, although Connecticut right now is proposing a statewide property tax for the first time in a long time. And we've had disputes over elected county, uh, county uh, property register over things like fracking, where we see... A like dispute about ways in which the locals attempt to frustrate state uh, state policy demands.
2: So, just so you know, I think in Saint Kitts, the first recording act actually gave life tenure to the county clerk. So, imagine that like you can <laughs> only be fired for good cause. Uh, <sighs> that was the way to even you know gain more local control. But I but just on, on this point, I wanted to also mention that it's not like we came up with like the greatest institutions. I mean, recording title. Is seems kind of insane. The fact we have to pay, pay title insurance all the time, because all we do are just hold records and not actually uh, that the state isn't at this point issuing. I don't know how you feel about this, but the fact the state isn't issuing title, you know, we get a title for our car, of course, but not like for our home and we have to buy title insurance. But but if you look back to the uh, 17th and 18th centuries, it was sort of a brilliant way to just build institutions on the cheap. It had basically no cost, like somebody had to sit there and keep a record of all these things. and. And just let people look through it.
1: Yeah, I I know nothing about this field. And I but when I did buy a house, I found it so so primitive that there was this piece of paper and I was strongly urged to buy this insurance, but no one could explain why I needed it and so forth. But I want to take this in a different direction because I know a lot of our listeners will be interested in, you know, first of all, what you say about slavery. Uh, and more broadly how you relate to this emergent field of the history of capitalism, um, which often emphasizes slavery in a very different way than you do. You know, your story is basically has to do with the slaves as collateral um, for, for credit. And, 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 you know, you, you do not, you, 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 you have a very different attitude towards the function that slavery might have played in, you know, the rise of capitalism or growth or whatever we're talking about, then, then kind of the, the, this, this new school of thought. So could you just talk about um, whether you have a critique of them or whether you're telling just kind of a more important story that they've missed or, um, you know, is, is there an opposition or more kind of just different, different arguments that could sit alongside each other.
2: Yeah. Well, first of all, I think it's great that there is this literature because it's been a long time coming. If you think that Eric Williams wrote his book, Capitalism Slavery in 1944, and there's been very little written. Um, I also want to just mention that when I wrote this book, I was very committed to the idea of doing what I would, I guess you could refer to as say a unifying history. Um, I I get disappointed when I see that people were writing either about the founding era or about slavery, which seemed to me this is not representative of what it, the country and it's very hard to write about this country in one with one idea, but I was committed to that and so it's a bit clunky in places and, but it's sort of a, a goal of mine was to try to write about the whole country at once um, or, you know, the 13 colonies and um, and and with with the with the, you know, perils of doing so. Um, with regard to this, the, the literature on slavery and capitalism, I would say I'm 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 want to add to it. And I recently for, for people who haven't uh, read this literature, I think a great introduction to it and a great sort of literature review is the Matthew Desmond, New York times op-ed from 2019, where he draws from a lot of the literature. And I would say the literature has largely focused on a later period on the 19th century. And you have financial institutions at that point. So you banking, um, and the like. And you have cotton, which was a different industry, I mean, in some ways, although it just it cotton the scale of cotton and also the fact that cotton was so so lucrative, just eliminated any thought that this was slavery is going to go away on its own. Um, in the period, so one way I feel I'm adding to the literature is actually just by looking at this this period where I think there's been less, and whether or not capitalism is going on at this period is a question. I, I would say um, people are defining capitalism lots of different ways right now. I, I my inclination is to think of capitalism as a time where there are big financial institutions and the like that are consolidating capital by, you know, by By you know, issuing debt instruments, issuing currencies, issuing stock, and they're these institutions designed to accumulate capital. Now you have like the Bank of England is. it Was uh, chartered in 1694, so that that's starting to happen in the period that I'm looking at. But it, but the co- in the colonies, actually, there were efforts to create banks that were suppressed, um, so there wasn't really banking. But I think that what I'm um, so I, when I think when you think about the emergence of capitalism, there, you might look you, there are these sort of financial institutions that are generating a lot of liquidity for the economy. But then I think this other piece of it which is sort of the way that property rights are defined and the way that these claims are processed actually it, it kind of lets people from the bottom up use the property that they have to leverage to, to access this capital and so when i think about the slavery and capitalism literature i mean first of all first of all one the fact that slaves are part of the capital is should be a, is a huge should be a huge part of our conception of what slavery was about we we talk about torture we talk about rape and slavery we talk about the inhumanity of having you know your autonomy taken away but the fact that you're to to, to be collateral creates insecurity of a magnitude that is sort of hard to fathom where you know whether your owner is going into debt or there's a bad weather year and the vulnerability that you have um to being seized. Um, in fact, I remember, I think it was in Annette Gordon-Reed's uh, book about uh, Washington um, that uh, he, she talked about how uh, that Washington was known for not torturing his slaves, but he would kind of walk down and say, you know, I could just sell you. And that is, that is torture in my mind. That is. Um, so, so that's, you know, in terms of how we think about slavery, I think that this is a, is a big um, important part, but also the fact that Slavery was a system where the labor is part of the capital, clearly allows people to access more capital and leads to the expansion of the institution. So um, there's an interesting... Uh, Gavin Wright has a book, uh, Gavin Wright um, from Stanford has a book called Slavery and American Economic Development, which I, is one of my favorite uh, books of history, actually, um, that where he he points out that if you look at the time of the revolution, if you look at uh, compare wealth in North and South, that if you include slaves as part of the wealth, then per, per free person capita, the South was much wealthier than the North, um, but then when you take away slaves as part of the wealth, then the South is much poorer. So, the it shows you that the 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 fact that slaves are part of the were were part of what made these economies wealthy and that what drove them to expand and 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 thrive. So, I think that it's slavery is is connected and I th- but I think you know what I'm looking at are sort of the way that people are using their property including slaves to access the credit that's available partly coming from you know this financial sector as well.
0: No, that's perfect. Yeah. I want to bring you back to some of the real property
2: stuff um
0: uh, uh and uh, and the north a little bit. Um so uh, uh we both have the great pleasure of teaching Molly Brady who is now a professor at Harvard um and Molly and I are in a big argument. I want you to help me out with that a little bit. Um, uh, by the way, hi, Molly, if you're listening. Um, uh, So like uh, Gary Liebkapp and Dean Luke, I am a big opponent of meets and bounds uh, property demarcation and a big fan of rectangles and squares on the ground, a number of grounds. One is that it kind of reduces information costs in a Merrill Smith sort of way. But another one is that it makes uh it makes it easier to buy bar- it again it's a kind of but by reducing information costs it uh it allows for it makes it property easier to figure out who owns what and it um and it uh allows for greater investment. Um uh Molly on- um takes an out- I think that at least in early American which kind of overlapping with your period that meets and bounds was pretty good for these kind of insular communities. Um of one of the insular communities she talks about is New Haven. Um uh I think that uh uh, her position that the the meets and bounds was a which we still have in um uh, because it, these property systems are extremely long lasting um uh, is like a, a pretty severe inhibitor of growth and following Liebkap and Luke um and that your story is a is pretty consistent with that that the one of the great innovations of American property law is its reduction of information costs across a number of dimensions and that meets and bounds is a kind of a a, a long tailed English uh inanity. So am I right or is Molly right or what?
2: Um, I actually, I don't have a view of meets and vows. I mean, I have to say that one thing that's interesting, I can tell you it was it was striking as i was trying going through all these colonial laws looking to see how they set up the recording systems that often they were more interested in just recording mortgages than trying to record property titles so we don't have this you know there's not this some big push for a cadaster type system or mapping or the like people just want to know how much leverage somebody has and maybe that's because we we didn't have that i mean i think i think that um I I, well, for one thing. I can, I guess I can reveal that Molly started her her (laughs) now famous article about meets and bounds in my seminar. And so I was there at the inception. So there's very hard pressed to put say anything against it. I Uh, love,
0: I love Molly, but I'm blaming you personally for this one. So
2: (laughs) you can't because she was the one who spent all the time in the New Haven land records (laughs) looking at all these meets and bounds and documenting it all. So I was just, I was just there on the other side telling her to get some fresh air once in a while. Um, But I think that. I think you're both right. I think that I. Well, also, do we want a world of maximum efficiency? Who wants that?
0: <laughs> Sorry, I'm waving my hand. I'm raising my hand. Sorry. He all, he always cops
1: to being the neoliberal on the faculty and in on this podcast in particular. So. <laughs> I
2: told you I was a Jim Scott student. Right. I'm all for illegibility. So yeah. uh, from time to time. So I think we we got the system that people wanted. So. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, so I know I know David and I are both uh, interested in in kind of the the kind of stuff at the end of the book, incredibly interesting section where you um, engage um, Hernando de Soto and the kind of like almost religious zeal he's sparked, uh, kind of around the world, allegedly on the American model of clarifying title as a recipe for growth. Um, so you know, I'd love you to just kind of um, say a few words about kind of how you engage him, but I also want to throw in Native Americans here because, you know, when I, you don't really talk about Native peoples that much compared to, you know, chattel slaves. And, you know, when I first read DeSoto, you know, it just occurred to me that, you know, uh, it's far easier to engineer growth if you engage in ethnic cleansing first. Um, Right. And especially in a place you know as bountiful as as this one so I, I could you could you could you could you tell us you know kind of either or both because David will also engage on DeSoto if you want to say that for him
2: okay well I mean first with regard to like Native American like conquest of Native American land that is I felt that that was such a big and important topic i it was really just sort of beyond the scope of a, a project that, I didn't really want to have last, like more than one lifetime. Um, and I think, I hope, you know, I would love, it, it, it's such an important topic and I hope much more work is is done in that area. I mean, the, the work that has been done is wonderful. And I think, you know, I I really, uh, it was really just sort of beyond what I, what I felt like I could do um, here. But I mean, it is, uh, thinking about it, it is striking that so many of the sources that I relied on weren't talking about it at all. And it's like... I guess this is the thing if you call it ethnic cleansing and and just the way people you know disappear from the story um, so my my uh, book is very internal to the legal system that's being set up without looking at that very important external circumstance um, so um, but in terms of of De Soto. I mean, one thing—it's interesting. People often credit Desoto with coming up of the the, the idea of title registration and I, informalization of title. And I kind of think, well, this is what you know. The British have been doing this for a long time. I mean, you know, from from I think this is a sort of, sort of a story of the the same you know the same type of process. And of course, in the 19th century, the British land policy became a huge aspect of their, um, you know, empire and and setting up empire. Um, I I think that how I engage him I, I I do think i'm I'm not ready to dismiss the idea outright because I think there's a distributive aspect of his account that is admirable, which is the idea of of that by allowing individuals to have title to property that they're squatting on, you're distributing. Property to the population in in a, in a kind of unprecedented way, and you know when you go to, I've driven around Peru and actually um, been driven around some of the some of the neighborhoods where these these programs were put in place by the people who were running them. Um, Fernando Cantuarius has been like incredibly generous to me. And it's, it's really remarkable to see what's happened where you had a lot of people fleeing the shining path, coming into the outskirts of Lima, building up communities and for the government to decide, okay, we're actually going to formalize this and, and grant title to people. I think it was incredibly important. And there's really, you know, uh, it's affected the ideology of people in Peru where people have as a life goal, you know, getting land. I mean, it kind of, Reminiscent of nineteenth-century U.S. Um, in a way that I think um, there's a, there's a lot to admire. I think the the problem is that he, he minimizes how much of the sort of institutional apparatus has to function well to make it work. You have to have legitimacy within communities, and so just to bring bring a set of institutions in from the top down and expect is going to run by itself doesn't seem to happen. Um and also I think I heard that um, you know, but just by turning charging higher fees for recording drives a lot of people back into the informal market. And then you've wasted a lot of money on something that is no longer reliable. So what you see in colonial US was that because these colonial assemblies are are there passing laws, making sure the system works to, you know, to some degree, I don't want to say it was by no means perfect, Um, led, there was legitimacy within each local community and the, and, you know, kind of a mechanism there for sort of reforming and revising the process. And I think the imperial context of trying to not let these institutions become revenue generators, like um, as took place in the Stamp Act, for example, um, the, uh, led to the, to a system that worked. Whereas I think I think the, the problem is people read, you know, this mystery of capital book by DeSoto and thought, you know, we can just implement this around the world. And it's the sort of silver bullet for economic development. And that's just like absolutely not the case. So um, I'm actually um, hoping in the future to to dig into this topic a lot more and actually write about it more so.
0: Really good. So I want to follow up exactly where you left off. So first of all, I just want to say one of my favorite ever uh, uh, DeSoto descending uh, findings was that uh, these title registration things increased labor supply because people didn't have to protect their houses as much. So there was, like a, so there was these other economic benefits. And I think that one of the things you, that, that fits nicely with um, uh, something you said. But in the book, you're a little uh, dour on the growth effects of uh, of, of 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 these standardizing tools. You kind of say, well, growth wasn't really taking off in uh, the 18th century. Um, all that much it was it was it was slow um uh um uh, but i think this seems a little dour because it's one of the things that um that uh you noted earlier kind of in that mentioning Asimoglu and Robinson was that it was like they think that you need a lot of things and all everything needs to work just right in order to produce kind of uh both growth and democratic security and the big thing it seems is that this created a conditions for when you had better a better financial system then things could take off and you needed both soil and water um and so the question again is like do you think the that this was in a very important element of future growth or was it just like not that important? It was just kind of an interesting, weird American development that's not that important or is it very much a necessary component of the much faster growth we see later? And of course, you know, becoming the richest country in the history of whatever,
2: right? I think the, the problem is that any causal claim is basically conjecture. Um, and so that's why- that, You're on a podcast. You can
0: feel free to conjecture all the way. It's not in <laughs> your book anymore. You can just you can just spout things. We're, we're, we're late in a podcast. You can just say, whatever
2: the heck you want. Well, and actually in some ways this ties back to the second part of Sam's question about some of the slavery and capitalism literature where there's now there's people are very skeptical about institutions and don't focus on other aspects of what is driving capitalism than institutions. Um, And I think, I think the problem I have is that to say that you can, you know, the idea that you can pass a law and that that's going to affect growth is when how do you take when the, when the data that you have is about you know you can you, you know the price of tobacco in markets around the world in the 18th century you know the cotton how cottons doing what these the role of these institutions in that is based on the data we had i've really scoured for any available set of numbers that i could look at to possibly say anything causal and i came up dry <laughs> and so when you look at the economic history literature on this period i think people are they're a little shocked that the, the any measures of growth and i'll leave it to to the economic historians to to come up with you know make use of the numbers that they have and the control studies that they can and and it's you don't find high growth rates at this time um but what i say in the book i mean i will stick to the the way i i i discussed in that chapter the problems are one slavery this is not a great system for long-term growth it leads to a very sort of sick economy that's not only due to the um, appalling treatment of the slaves themselves, but also just in terms of focusing everything on particular staple crops that exhaust the land and require constant moves west to to keep it going. you know, and I also talk about um, these institutions, you know, basically what I'm talking about is on the margin, people are accepting a lot more financial risk. Every asset that you have is available to be seized by a creditor. I don't think that we don't have that system now. I don't think that is a really healthy way to run a society with that level of risk. You have cyclical, uh, you know, uh, you know, downturns and, and to have widespread foreclosure potentially. Um, So I don't, to me is not, uh, I'm not going to sort of stand back and say, this is, this is some path to, to growth. Everyone should adopt these policies. I, I, I don't think that at all. Um, But I think if anything comes out of it, it's a story about, about, you know, how can you, how can you use, like local institutions so that people can can feel that they that the 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 apparatus of the state and property does work for them. I think that's maybe something we to strive for. And I think, you know, I think if there was more of that in the DeSoto thesis, um, that i think more people would like if if we could sort of solve that problem how does this not just become some top down thing where you're relying on on the state and its potential weaknesses uh with all, with all of its potential weaknesses you know to run to run these institutions if you could figure out a you know a design where where people have more input and that you can gain legitimacy in the community then that would work better
1: so you know it's it just to state the obvious claire you know you, you, people have been uh following your work both in the history community and the property community for years. And it's, it's, it's fantastic that it's led to this culmination. Everyone should read this book. Uh, but that only leads to, you know, our last question, which is what, what, what's your next, you know, act you hinted before that you wanted to kind of, uh, you know, think in the direction we've just been discussing. Um, but, why don't you tell us what your what your research agenda holds?
2: Well, because this is the podcast that people might listen to, I'm 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 not sure this is a good idea, but I'll I'll do it anyway since you asked, which is that I I actually have been planning to um, take a small break from history and do to, to go to Peru and, um, and actually take oral histories of all the people who were involved in Soto's project. Um, and I actually was down in Lima when COVID hit uh, with everything set up to start that project. And unfortunately had to come running home on a, um, I actually got on a government repatriation flight uh, by the offered by the country of Brazil <laughs> to get out of Lima and But, um, but so that I think, because I find, you know, I think that, after writing this book, it gives me a particular kind of insight, and also through Yale Law School, I'm very, very fortunate to have actually met a lot of Peruvians who've come here as as LLMs and JSDs who were involved with the And it's sort of like reflecting back after, since this program started in the 1990s, and looking back, that, that's a, that's a sort of dream project. Um, but you know, recently I've been thinking that um, digging more into the slavery and capitalism idea. I have actually a background in banking history, and I feel there is a way to um, and just d- just to to look more maybe in sort of financial history and in the interplay with with uh, property law from from that standpoint could be um, compelling, whether it's a book or whether it's where there is an article or, or how I how I do it. I'm not sure. Um, I also have a number of property projects uh, in mind, um, so uh, I can I can share those at a later time. <laughs> Well, we're excited to read them all. So I just want to say thank you
0: so much for coming on the pod. Um, It's been a real pleasure. And seriously, everyone go out and get this book. I'm holding it up. You can't see it because this is a pure audio medium, but it's called Credit Nation, Property Laws and Institutions in Early America by by the wonderful Claire Priest. So thank you so much. Thank you, Claire. Thanks
2: so much, David and Sam. See you again soon.